You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Union Road Presbyterian Church. For more information, join us on Facebook or visit our website at unionroad.org.uk. Do you have that passage open in front of you as we turn to it now together? As we continue in our Among Us series today, focusing on these first three verses in John chapter 14. Let me read them just again. Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Jesus said, Do not let your hearts be troubled. These are timeless words for God's trembling people. Words that have proved a wonderful source of comfort to countless generations in their times of grief are those gripped with an overwhelming sense of uncertainty and despair. Jesus here is addressing sleepless nights, those nagging doubts, or fearful futures. When we wonder if we can cope with the way things have changed or how things might be, Jesus is speaking with his disciples here in the upper room on the night before his own death. And he knows very clearly what tomorrow will bring, but he is far more concerned in these verses with his friends and their troubled hearts. Let's remember that Good Friday takes Jesus to the cross, but here Jesus is taken up with how his disciples will respond in their confusion. You see, there's the euphoria of Palm Sunday. If you've got your Bible, there are just two chapters before in John chapter 12 when the crowds cried Hosanna as Jesus entered Jerusalem on a young donkey. And we read in John 12 verses 17 to 29 of Jesus' resurrection powers that brought Lazarus back from the dead. That's what brought the crowds out. Here is someone who can raise the dead. And then the Pharisees get edgy. John 12 verse 20 says, look how the whole world has gone after him. And then in moving from his triumphal procession, Jesus outlines the trials that then are to await him. Look at John 13, the next chapter. John 13 verse 27, where Jesus says very clearly, now my soul is troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very hour I came. And then as the disciples gather in that upper room to celebrate the Passover, Jesus washes their feet, he predicts his own betrayal, and he outlines Peter's denial. In other words, our Lord Jesus, in these significant chapters, when he lived among us, was concerned first and foremost about what was troubling us. That's what it says in verse 1. He addresses it directly. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You see, the demeanor and the language of Jesus in John chapter 13 had left the disciples reeling. They had this sense that the clouds were gathering, the the darkness was deepening, the tide was turning, the wind was blowing, and they were unsure if they could survive the gathering storm of Good Friday. Jesus was going to leave them. That in itself would reduce their world to rubble. But they would also have to cope with the way Jesus departed. They would see him betrayed by one of the twelve, and they're beginning to speculate who that might be. 
He was to be arrested and condemned to death that would not only wrench him from them, but would then cover his name in mud because anyone crucified was regarded as cursed. And by association, the twelve who were with him would become wanted men. But Jesus is this world's most skilled cardiologist. He is an expert in the field of dealing with people and their broken, troubled, and sinful hearts. And these disciples really did have troubled hearts. If you look at the word for trouble, where Jesus says it in verse 1, do not let your hearts be troubled. It's exactly the same word that Jesus uses of himself in John chapter 13 and verse 21. Turn back just that chapter. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. These two words are the same. And the word that is used when Jesus shares that he was about to be betrayed by one of his friends is the same word that he uses to describe the trouble that he knows the disciples are feeling. And the word doesn't just mean trouble. The word means the tremor, a shudder like an earthquake. Jesus experienced that in talking openly about his own betrayal. Jesus felt it deeply. It moved him within. It unsettled his own spirit that one of his own was to betray him. And he knows that's how the disciples felt in the wake of the news that he was about to leave them and that the cross and separation lay before him. There was a tremor in their hearts. Their whole world was going to be shaken, a deep-seated shaking. Yet, yet Jesus' heart is such that he's more concerned for them than he is for himself. Donald MacLeod put it like this. What is before the Lord's mind here then is not how he himself would cope with the cross, but how his confused and bewildered disciples would cope. It is the trouble in their minds that troubles him. And he addresses it not only with soothing words, but with powerful arguments, arguments they must remember when they see him hanging on the cross, and which we too must remember when God leads us where we cannot cope and cannot understand. I find those words immensely reassuring. Because all of us in our lives are taken to points where we feel we cannot cope and the places what we do not understand. And yet Jesus acknowledges and is involved in that. Jesus cares more for the grief of his disciples would face than the excruciating pain that he would encounter. And whilst the cross was staggeringly real to Jesus, the loss of dignity, the loss of blood, the loss of life, the loss of his greatest source of help, his Father in heaven, as he became sin for us, Jesus' heart is so gracefully big that he thinks of his friends more than himself. But did you hear MacLeod's words to us a moment ago? The soothing words of Jesus are words that we must remember when God leads us where we cannot cope and cannot understand. There's no better illustration than this in all of the Bible than in Psalm 23, verses 3 and 4, is there? Where we read, He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. But I want you to look at it really closely today. I want you to look at that verse maybe as you've never seen it before. He, that is God, 
He guides us along right paths. He guides us in paths of righteousness. But it doesn't stop there. Look how the verse continues. Because sometimes the right paths are the dark valleys. Did you hear that? Sometimes the right paths are the dark valleys. And it is there that we find we need fear no evil, for he is with us. You know, sometimes the only way of growing in our Christian lives is that place of shuddering with earth shaking and knees quaking. We get news we didn't want or the person, place or thing that we relied upon has been removed from us. The way to grow as a Christian is not in the playground of pleasure and prosperity or the padded seat of comfort and stability. It's in the schoolroom of suffering that we learn most about Jesus and about our faith. Along those dark, narrow, pinching, uncomfortable valleys of difficulty, it is there we learn more about God, and it's there we lean more upon Him. That's where and when we need to, as Hebrews 12 tells us, keep our eyes fixed on Jesus so that you do not grow weary or lose heart. The minute we take our eyes off Jesus, we grow weary and we do lose heart. But hear what the psalmist says, because you are with me, he is kept from being afraid. Hear what Jesus says next in your cardiac arrest over your circumstances or in your spiritual angina. John 14 verse 1, Jesus says the same, you believe in God, believe also in me. Trust me, says Jesus. Trust God, says Jesus. What is about to happen will be dark and dangerous, yet behind it all is the hand of God. Jesus has already reassured them that no one could take his life from him unless he laid it down of his own accord. In other words, Jesus would only give himself over to death whenever he himself desired it and in the way that he planned it. His act of dying was always for a purpose. There was always that salvation plan in mind to obey his Father in heaven and save his people on earth. But something we often forget in the mix here is that the arguments that Jesus used with his disciples are the same arguments that Jesus presented to himself hour after hour, day after day, as he had to remind himself that as he approached the cross, he too needed to believe in God and trust in that plan. Something we have learned from this series among us is that Jesus is the Son of God, but he's the Son of God made flesh. Jesus is human. Jesus has all the characteristics that we have yet without sin. He got sick and he got tired. He was sad and he was frustrated with the way this world was. And as the man, Christ Jesus, approaches the cross, he approaches the cross with a shuddering heart. His humanity shrank back from the pain, and his divinity shrank back from the separation from God the Father. What he was asking the disciples to do, believe in God, Jesus had to do that himself. And as he walked that Calvary road, sitting there in the upper room, breaking bread and wine and showing that it was to be his body shredded, his blood about to flow, it had been so easy for Jesus to be so overwhelmed and say, enough, I I can't go through this. 
the pain, the anguish, the spiritual torment. I can't face this. Just as he asked in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, if there's any other way, make it possible. The humanity of Jesus coming through, the divinity of Jesus coming through, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. You see, Jesus was asking the disciples to have the same faith in God that he had. And God as Father to raise him in the resurrection. Jesus displays faith in his Father as he approaches the darkness of the cross. And as he walks the darkest paths, he does what he urges us to do. But also by asking the disciples to believe in him, believe also in me. This time, not equating himself with humanity, but Jesus very clearly equating himself here with God. He says to his disciples, do you trust me? Friends, you can believe in me. You can rely upon me. And as we look back here today with such an advantage, for we know that Jesus' death and that gruesome, tragic, and all as it was, was not the end. Sunday followed Friday. But in Jesus Christ, we see so clearly that we have a God who doesn't make promises from the sky, but a God who fulfills promises in his own flesh and blood through death and resurrection. And he says to us this morning, quivering, quaking, querying, questioning disciples, trust God. Trust me. What a God we have. He knows what is troubling us. And Jesus was troubled too. But he has a remedy for us. Here's the second thing. Some words to encourage us. Look at verse 2. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? There are many translations of the word mone, M-O-N-E, in John 14. Traditionally, in the King James Version, it was translated mansions. In my father's house are many mansions. You know, if we trust in Jesus Christ, when we get to heaven, we almost get this image in our mind that we'll get our own personal Downton Abbeys in glory. Others, like the NIV, suggest the word many rooms. But the closest idea we get to what Jesus is actually saying here, it says... I'm going to prepare a place with space. Estate agents would talk about ample provision. But what we often neglect in this verse, because we're so busy dreaming of golden floors and dreamy ivory staircases and polishing our halos, is whose house are we talking about? Well, if you're nosy like me, when you pass a quirky house or a luxurious house, what's the first thing you ask? I wonder... He lives there. When I was at school, the most regular part-time job I had was a paper round. Now, for those of you who are younger, you may have to ask your folks to explain what on earth a paper round was. But I headed out after school around four o'clock to collect my sack of Belfast telegraphs from the shop to then go and deliver around 60 homes around the Knock Road and indeed Cherry Valley in East Belfast. And as I did that round year after year, I got used to cycling up the long driveways or through the gated villages, as it were, with maybe two houses in this huge area where the real posh people live. And whilst I simply had their name written at the top of each newspaper and their address, over time, conversations did open up. And I got to know more than just who lived there, but maybe I learned something about them and what they did 
and the family they had and how many villas in Spain they owned and so on. But to know the owner was always a huge bonus, especially when it came to tips at Christmas time. But I think, in fact, I don't just think, I know in our selfish obsession at times, whenever it comes to funerals and loss and grief with ourselves and where our loved ones might be, we've forgotten the owner of this house. Jesus says it's the Father's house. It's not the size or acreage or square feet or architect or QS or farmer and builders, not what they obsess about when it comes to accommodation that matters most, but who owns it? You see, to these Jewish background believers, as soon as Jesus said the Father's house, they were thinking not of heaven, but the temple. That's what Jesus called it back in Luke 2, 49, my Father's house. They weren't thinking of heaven, they were thinking of the temple. And there's no doubt the temple in Jesus' day was huge. It could cope with thousands of visitors at any time. It was spacious. There was ample provision. People around the outer and inner courts and the priests. And even the fact that Jesus is saying this around Passover time, as Jesus speaks to his friend, that the temple was heaving with people. It could have coped with tens of thousands of people at any one time. But despite its bigness and its busyness, the likes of Peter, John, James, or Andrew, never mind you and me, could only go so far into the temple. The holy place, as we know, was reserved for the priests. And the most holy place, as we've been learning about over these many weeks, was only for the high priest once a year at the time of the atonement, standing before the Ark of the Covenant with his heart quaking if his sacrifice of blood would be enough and would he be acceptable before God. You see, they were Jews, yes, but entry into God's presence was just a mere dream. None of them were ever likely to be a Levite. They couldn't suddenly change tribes. They couldn't end up being a high priest. They couldn't come before God. It was just a distant dream. There were so many barriers in the Jewish system that kept them spiritually, physically, away from the temple and away from God. God seemed distant and God seemed dangerous. But Jesus is offering a wonderful image here of a father's house, not a floaty, surreal heaven in the sky, but a personal place where Jesus' disciples will be accepted for who they are without pretense not requiring them to wear priestly robes or offering a mountain of sacrifices, but a personal place where they can be with God the Father, the home of God the Son, available for all who would trust in Him. And you see, after Jesus' resurrection, He drove this relationship home to them in John 20, verse 17, when He says, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. I love what J.C. Ryle has to say about this. Heaven is a father's house. It is, in a word, home. The home of Christ and Christians. This is a sweet and touching expression. Home, as we all know, is the place where we are generally loved for our own sakes and not for our gifts or possessions. The place where we are loved to the end, never forgotten, always welcome. This is one idea of heaven. Believers are in a strange land and at school in this life. In the life to come, they will be at home. But don't you love that? The place where we are loved to the end, never forgotten, and always welcome. 
You see, the Father's house speaks of a home. It's personal. It's intimate with God. And I know for many of you, the idea of home conjures up all sorts of memories. But for those of you whose idea of home brings a warmth to your heart, even a spring in your step or delight to your mind, think of how the idea of home has stirred the heart of the soldier who's away serving on a dangerous battlefield. He longs to be home on leave. Or an explorer after months on trek, cut off from contact with the outside world, he would love to be in the comfort of home. Or a shipwrecked sailor desiring that that joy of home. Or the homesick teenager away off to work or university, far away for the first time. Or even for some of us, despite us all enjoying our holidays, we often say, it's nice to be home. All of us in this life, like soldiers with a battle raging around us, sin, temptation, doubt, pain, loss, like explorers finding that whilst the adventure in life is good and the the new sights are stunning, there's still something missing in life. We're never satisfied no matter how many exciting new things we buy or get or achieve. We'll never be satisfied. Or we can feel like that shipwrecked sailor, washed up, isolated. Maybe you're feeling almost like you're on a desert island at the minute. You've been isolated for so long over these months. And underlying it all is that God-shaped hole in our lives to be with God. That's home. And it's interesting, the same word, mone, plenty of room, lots of space, is exactly the same word that is used one chapter on in John 15 and verse 4, which is really significant. John 15, verse 4, we read about the vine and the branches when it says, remain in me as I also remain in you. It's the same word, mone. There's lots of room in me as I also make lots of room in you. Isn't that incredible? He tells us we can make our home with him, but he will make our, his home with us. Home, the Father's house, is where we long to be. It's in fact being with Jesus. The place where we're accepted for who we are because our faith rests in Christ who gives us that key and opens that door to God for us. Friends, many of us are sitting at home today and we're homesick for Jesus. We're restless and anxious and have no peace in our souls until either we come to Christ for the first time or when we've drifted away, we need to come back to Christ again and again and again. It's only there that these troubling times will be reassured by these beautiful words. Which leads us on to our third point. Jesus is preparing a place for us. He says that, doesn't he, in verses 2 and 3, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And sadly, we've turned these stunning words of Jesus into an image of him with an army of angelic bricklayers, electricians, and plumbers sizing up our property. Or worse still, Jesus tidying the place up for you with his duster and hoover in hand, rearranging the furniture, making heaven a perfect fit just for you. We have destroyed this verse at countless funerals and made it into something it was never meant to be. For we are not to view Jesus as the domestic homemaker with his apron or his boiler suit on up there somewhere. No, these verses are to lead us to the Jesus, verse 6, who is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is preparing a place by making it the way, the truth, and he is the way, the truth, and the life. Let me explain. Mike Rader, the Australian author and pastor, put it like this. 
Is that wonderful promise of the place our Lord will prepare for us about the future, or is it about the present? Is our dwelling with God something we receive in this age, or just in the age to come? So to what and when is Jesus referring in John 14, verse 2? We've already assumed he's referring to heaven. We've assumed he's telling his disciples that after he dies and rises again, he'll go to heaven and while there, get a house ready for his people. Then at some time in the future, at what we call his second coming, he'll take all his disciples to be with him in their heavenly space. But Jesus is speaking to here also about the present. Right here and right now, we can live with him in the Father's house. Did you know that? Because it's not about a place. It's not just about heaven. It's not just about the temple, but it's the person we are with. Right here and right now, we can live with him in the Father's house, in relationship with the Father. In John 14, verse 2, Jesus is telling his disciples that by dying and rising again, he is preparing a place for them. That's preparing the place, dying and rising again. And it won't be a case of book now before all the rooms are taken. For no, once atonement for our sins is made by Christ at the cross, have all been paid for. The way is open. There'll be lots of space in the Father's house. There's lots of room to enter his family. Jesus will then come by his Spirit, and he and the Father will make their home with his people for all time. Jesus preparing a place for us is another way of saying Jesus is just about to dismantle any roadblocks on that way back to the Father. He will deal with sin. He will be subject to the Father's wrath at sin. He will face Satan and not succumb to temptation. He will obey the law completely to the end. He will face death head on and be swallowed up by it, but he will emerge victorious and triumph over it. Jesus is tearing up and removing every obstacle that separates us from him. Jesus is ripping the curtain temple from top to bottom in his own body. He is the curtain, Hebrews tells us, pulled apart so that we may enter into God's holy presence, knowing that our sin is dealt with and our guilt is swept away. Jesus has had to go ahead to prepare a place, prepare the way, because we cannot land in God's presence without him already securing a place for us. We have no title to it ourselves. Our title derives entirely from him, and he will earn the title by means of his death and by his resurrection. And through that, we share in the riches of his grace. Many years ago now, I was in my happy place as some people call it, watching cricket at a match in Jesmond Cricket Club in Newcastle-upon-Tyne. The lads I was with were keen cricket fans too, but their older sister was at Durham University with Nasser Hussein, who's on the screen there now. He happened to be England's latest young star who went on to captain England for many years. He was playing that day, and as soon as the match was over, we did what most kids did. We ran onto the pitch and made a beeline for Nasser Hussein. Nasser, my friend Andy called out in the melee. Hi, he said, I'm Ali Brumby's sister. Amidst the crowd that descended on these star names, Hussein brought us with him around into the player's area. And when the security guard stopped us, Nasser looked at this burly Geordie in his high-vis jacket and simply said, these lads are with me. 
And for the next hour, we got to meet every world-class cricketer on display that day. There was room for us because we had someone famous on the inside. And when we trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, when we trust in Jesus Christ as the only way, the only truth, the only life, as the one who offers us true and eternal life. It is as if our Lord Jesus says to the cherubim and seraphim, the dreaded angels who wield their swords to protect the holiness of God's presence, he says, bear with me. Bear with me. He or she, bear with me. I've prepared the way through my death, resurrection, ascension. Bear with me. My fourth point is probably the shortest, but one of the sweetest I will ever make, for these verses also highlight that Jesus will come back for us. That's what it says in verse 3, doesn't it? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Folks, Jesus will not neglect you. Just because he's in heaven, he won't forget you. He doesn't give up on you. He doesn't deceive you. And one day, he's coming back for us. He came back for the disciples that first time, didn't he? On Easter Sunday morning. That's how they would have read it, first of all. But whenever he ascended to heaven, they knew that he had been true to his word before. And we know that he'd be true to his word again. He will come back. And actually behind the Greek in this verse is the idea of he will give us a personal escort back to him. Not beautiful? You don't have to be worried how, but who? He truly is the God who came among us. And what a God we have for us. Friends, in all the turmoil that life throws at us, in all the shuddering and shaking that we have faced and will face as parts of life in this fallen world, what strengthens your heart today? What does this Jesus, the chief spiritual cardiologist who knows our broken, troubled, sinful heart, what does he advise? What does he diagnose? A heavy, regular dose of, I'm with Jesus. Are you? Are you with Jesus? For he's the answer to all our hearts. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that we can meet you wherever we are today that every barrier that has been keeping us apart from you have been torn apart and removed and discarded because you have prepared the way. And so we stand, we sit in your presence, that place with lots of room there for anyone who believes in you and the work of your Son. Lord, for those of us who have enjoyed that safe space with you for years, we bless you. For those who have found that place with you recently, we rejoice with them in this newfound faith. But for those intent on making their own way to heaven, of seeking to please you by all they do and the energy they exhaust in that, Lord, may they find in Christ their peace, their rest from striving. And may they find you the Savior who dismantles every obstacle through his glorious death and resurrection. 
Lord, for all who are troubled, and Jesus recognizes trouble in these words, for all who are troubled, whose dreams scare them, whose sleepless nights worry them, whose pains bother them, whose diagnosis scares them, for those whose sins burden them, whose past haunts them, for those whose future concerns them, Lord, here are the words we need. Believe the loving Father. Believe the sacrificial Jesus. Lord, to whom else can we go? Where else can we get such relief and such deep reassurance? For Lord, as we walk these paths of righteousness, even in the darkness, may we fear no evil. Lord, for all who need encouragement, for all who feel like the shipwrecked sailor or distant soldier, the home seems to be so appealing, the Father's house all-consuming, thank you for that place, for its name and for all it means, that in Jesus Christ we do not need to pretend to be someone else. We come as sinners, runaway sons and daughters, and yet accepted there, not for pretending, but for admitting that we have strayed and we are sinful, and how we need and long for the embrace of the Father. Lord, may we accept Christ as our all in all, the God who came among us, who, as it were, reintroduces us to the Father, saying, she is with me. He is with me. Lord, for all who are faltering in their faith, for all who need reassurance in their life today, whether our children at home, our teens as they come across opposition and obstacles for the first time, for those who serve you, like Colin Jenkins in Cork, or Shivapa in Havari in India, or Dr. Sasa on behalf of the Myanmar people, or again as the group reaches out to our Syrian friends locally even tomorrow, in all our wavering, in all our wondering, even when we feel weak, set us on that spiritual ECG and let us see our hearts as you see them, and give our broken, sinful, serving hearts over to Jesus, the great cardiologist, who diagnoses and heals and mends and saves. Lord, in this Easter week, give us a heavy, regular dose of Jesus to strengthen our hearts, we pray. 